Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. I'm Melissa Kane. I'm a political analyst and attorney, and I'm your moderator today. It's my pleasure to be here with the author of The Scheme, How the Right Wing Used Dark Money to Capture the Supreme Court. Our guest has been representing Rhode Island in the U.S. Senate since 2007, and he's a senior member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Today, we'll be discussing his new book and taking questions from viewers. As a reminder, we encourage you all to submit your questions in that text chat on YouTube. And now let's turn it over and say hello to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Thanks, Melissa. Wonderful to be with everybody. And I'm grateful for the invitation from the Commonwealth Club. We are so happy to have you here to ask questions. But first, let's just start with a broad question your book is called The Scheme. So give us a summary. What is the scheme you describe in your book? So I think the um, ideas that people need to have in mind for the rest of our discussion are some pretty simple ones. The first is that this is really not a conservative court, not by any standards of judicial conservatism. It's really more a captured court. So you have to have uh, conceptually the notion of regulatory capture or agency capture, which is a long phenomenon in U.S. history, a very, very unfortunate one. But you can imagine, you know, 19th century railroad commissions that were captured and run by the railroad barons. So that's kind of the model. It's had a long, long, um, unfortunate history, as I said, all the way up to if you remember the Minerals Management Service that allowed the uh, BP uh, oil spill explosion to uh, happen in the Gulf after a lot of very, very bad regulatory effort. And then the other is that how this was done bears a lot of resemblance to what you and I would probably ordinarily think of as a covert operation. And if you think of the intelligence efforts of intelligence agencies scheming, to use my word, in other countries, a lot of the stuff that intelligence agencies do to accomplish their goals in other countries is exactly the kind of stuff that was done uh, to effect the capture of the Supreme Court. So if you have in mind a covert operation, in this case run in and against our own country by special interests, and a captured agency, um, then I think the pieces begin to fall into place pretty quickly. Well, and so you, the way you structure the book, now you, you're an attorney, um, former U.S. attorney, I believe, and uh, the way yep. you structure the book is uh, is sort of by making a legal argument, and you sort of lay the chapters out uh, as like as sort of a lawyer making a legal argument. You have a chapter on motive and means and co-conspirators. Uh, why make the decision to, to lay the book out that way? Because um, the problem, as the title suggests, is dark money. Dark money is the means through which this scheme was effected. And the very definition of dark money is that it's anonymous. You don't know who's doing the spending. They hide themselves. That's what makes the covert operation covert. So you have to deduce a lot of this. And that takes you into the realm of circumstantial evidence, which is very good evidence. And a lot of very evil people are spending time in prison because of circumstantial evidence proving uh, the crime that they convicted. Uh, but they, it takes a little bit of, of uh, doing to set it up that way, because there's, it's not like a news story where you find somebody who can tell you something that blows the scheme wide open. You've got to actually assemble all the evidence the way a prosecutor would. So that seemed to me to be the best model for, for structuring the book. And was there a particular moment or a piece of information that really set you on the path to trying to put these uh, these pieces together? Tell us what inspired you to to finally say, hey, I think this is what's happening, and I want yeah. to tell people about that. Well, in my um, jobs before I uh, came to the Senate, um, as you say, I was a lawyer, um, but I also did a fair amount of appellate work. I've argued a case in the U.S. Supreme Court. I've argued cases in two of the 
circuit courts of appeal. I've argued frequently before the state Supreme Court here. And for a lot of reasons, those appellate cases fit into a you know busy schedule and worked for me. So doing the appellate work was my sort of uh, litigative bread and butter. So when the court began to behave in very weird ways, it was apparent to me fairly quickly because I had been exposed a lot to what proper appellate practice looks like. And when they veered off those rails, it was easy for me to notice. And I began to express concerns about this in the in the Senate, um, but my colleagues hadn't really gotten there yet. And uh, there were some rather difficult moments when I was basically told to shut up and sit down because what are you talking about? The Supreme Court depends on credibility. We can't possibly criticize it. So I thought, okay, I've got to figure this out I, and, and put some evidence before my colleagues. So I wrote an article that was vetted by a lot of people and went through what you might call red teaming and was put out there for public scrutiny and nobody has critiqued it. But when I did that, what I found was that the record was actually worse than I was afraid of and that nobody had put the case together yet. And one article, you know, lost in some group's journal is one thing, uh, but I figured more needed to be said than that. So I tried to take that and expand it into what became this book. Well, I have to say one of the things as a reader that really stuck out was the Powell memo. Uh, It's something you write about sort of early on in the book and as something that's sort of an important roadmap for for the scheme, I would I would say Um, not sure that you would. But, you know, it seems like a pretty good outline. Um, Can you talk about that memo and how you came to discover it and what impact it has had on the trajectory of, of things that came after? Well, there's been kind of, you know, progressive legend about the Powell memo. And as I became more concerned about the Supreme Court, I went and actually found it, dug it out. Um, And it's a memo that was written by uh, an attorney named Lewis Powell um, for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to respond to their concerns about the loss of corporate power and the rise of what in the 60s was called liberalism and we now would call progressivism and how that was interfering with their business models, how that was interfering with their ability to sell themselves, how they were being, you know, ridiculed and um, condemned for, you know, the products that they made and the lack of safety and the pollution and all that. So they hired somebody to put a strategic plan for corporate America together to push back and reclaim power in the country. And what was interesting is that this lawyer, Lewis Powell from Richmond, Virginia, turned his memo into the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and about four months later got sworn in to the United States Supreme Court as Mr. Justice Powell. Weirdly, nobody turned over this important memo that he'd written to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to the Senate in his confirmation process. So it was kind of a secret that slowly emerged uh, over time. But it laid out several strategies for reclaiming corporate power, what they thought was a loss of corporate power. And one of the strategies was to look at courts and to understand that courts were a powerful force for shaping the uh, culture and the economics of our country and to go about it deliberately. And so the seed at that point was planted that a court wasn't just an arbitrary thing out there that just dispensed justice. It was an institution that had an effect on how the country ran. And if you could control that institution, you could make enormous progress. And then, of course, that developed over time as they tried to do things that people hated politically. And for obvious reasons, they failed at doing those things that people hated politically So the idea kept coming back, oh, my God, if we could do this through the court, nobody has to, you know, they're bombproof. They don't have to run for re-election. They can do what we want. So the focus then shifted. I I don't think that the Powell memo was the beginning of the scheme necessarily, but it certainly laid out for the first time to interested corporate powers the notion that capturing a court was a potential means of exerting power against the will of the people in our country. Well, I do want to, to to dig into that just a bit, because 
um, to some degree, the the, the scheme itself um, it relies on this idea, uh, as you write in the book, uh, the court doesn't answer to voters. But mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of does, right? I mean, voters like people like you to go to D.C. to make laws that then the courts have to um, abide by or interpret um, appropriately. And so when you look at things like, and that's not, you know, constitutional amendments are harder to do, but certain pieces of legislation like the Federal Arbitration Act um, could be amended. I know you've tried, (laughs) you've been trying to amend it so that their, their rulings would actually be more constrained. So, I mean, there is some check on the, on the, court's power, even though it's, it is difficult to do. Um, and it yeah. feels more difficult to do these days. Yeah. And where you have, I mean, the obvious premise of the book is that the capture of the court and the direction of it that has resulted from its capture are aligned with big Republican donors. So the fact that there's an alignment with the Republican party should be no surprise. So if you really want to do this, you get the court to do what you want. And then you use your Republican uh, forces in Congress to prevent exactly the type of changes or corrections or repairs that you're talking about. And, of course, if they are starting from a position of deciding what the Constitution says and that they're making constitutional laws rather than interpreting a statute, then it gets really difficult. And some of the worst decisions they've made have been hooked into constitutional provisions so that it's much, much harder uh, to undo them. You know how difficult it is to amend the U.S. Constitution. We do it very, very rarely, and it's a real ordeal. Uh, And it takes a long, long time. So they have many, many years for their decisions to play out, even if you could amend the Constitution to repair it. And one of the things, I mean, you do talk about um, in the book is this, you know, couple of early victories on dark money and that yeah. that really paves the way for other various anti-regulatory challenges. Um, yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about how that sort of sort of starts a machine that um, that then, you know, allows to your point um, or prevents uh, various amendments that might otherwise be made? You sort of very smartly yeah. or, you know, however you want to maybe whatever word you want to use there uh, started with let's open it up to um, to unaccountable money. Yeah. Well, it actually begins a little bit further back than that when uh, the court, or at least the Republican members of the court, first opened up the American political system to corporate participation. And that was the job of none other than Lewis Powell. And his first decision was uh, called Bellotti versus Bank of Massachusetts, and it let the Bank of Massachusetts uh, spend money in a referendum election in the state of Massachusetts and created the proposition that they had business in a state election, a referendum election, which if you go back to the Constitution, if you go back to the constitutional debates in Philadelphia, if you go back to the Federalist Papers, nobody talked about a role for corporations. I mean, the whole idea is preposterous. And that was the first foothold of corporate power. And then, you know, on went the uh, decisions gradually building on that until we finally got to uh, the real problem child, which is the Citizens United decision, which let unlimited amounts of money into politics. And that was the great bellwether, not only just into, into any election, not just a state election, not just a referendum election, but across the entire political frontier of the country, unlimited money could be spent. And of course, the people who are going to be spending unlimited money are basically either corporations themselves or the forces of corporate wealth. So it was the wide open gate for corporate power into our democracy. Well, yeah, so I live in San Francisco. I'm in San Francisco right now. We certainly are in a place where we have um, large tech companies that um, that aren't necessarily, um, or at least don't appear to necessarily be on the right. I mean, can we can we necessarily assume that all corporate money is going to right wing or this sort of federalist society um, engineered um, line yeah. of cases and line of, you know, line of changes that they'd like to see in the law. Uh, you know, isn't there some room for for companies to to give money and be part 
of left-leaning or you know, sort of anti, um, anti-conservative causes? Yeah, we'll have to see about that. You know, this is all new. The Citizens United decision was decided in January of 2010. And the interests that went immediately into action based on that decision were primarily right-wing interests, anti-regulatory interests, interests who had a lot of engagement with government because they were heavily regulated, polluting interests in particular. So the Koch brothers and their big operation, the whole fossil fuel industry, I think they were the ones that really started this off. And over time, other groups and other donors have piled in so that the actual spending on both sides has become uh, more balanced. But the thrust of it still has this very heavy um, regulated industry component to it. And so to me, it still has that uh, lean or that bias. And if you think of it as a way to actually make money as opposed to just a way to express yourself. So look at the fossil fuel industry. They've got a $600 billion annual subsidy in the U.S. from being able to pollute for free says the International Monetary Fund, right? It's not greenies, it's the International Monetary Fund. So if you're protecting $600 billion, you can spend an enormous amount of money to do that. And somebody who's coming in just to be a good citizen, somebody who's coming in for, you know, iliomocenary or charitable purposes, isn't going to sustain the kind of effort that you will sustain if you're basically paying yourself 600 times your investment every year. So that's where the I think the bias is not just one of past experience, but also um, one that can be projected into the future. And certainly that's been the direction of the court under the influence of the uh, dark money funders that got them there. Now, is this an antitrust argument? I mean, it, it could, because it will always make more sense. I mean, if you're if you're a company that is so big that you have hundreds of billions of dollars at stake in a, you know, based on a regulatory um, issue, uh, whether it's through the courts or the legislature or whatever. I mean, it's always going to make sense to spend one billion, you know, (laughs) who's counting uh, to to influence that. I mean, is is there an issue with 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 some of these companies just being too big so that that equation is always going to make sense somehow? Yeah, well, there's. I guess two things there. One, it's always going to be an issue, particularly now that we've got, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar corporations. Um, The amount that they can spend to influence politics successfully compared to what they have at their disposal and wherewithal is a tiny little fraction. So it's very, very easy and a big invitation for them to get involved in politics and try to manipulate our politics when you have these huge aggregations of um, corporate wealth. Um, and I'm sorry, I forgot the other part of your I was just question. saying, is there, is there an antitrust uh, issue here? Oh, the antitrust is there, is there something yeah, yeah, yeah. that needs to be done to make, to no, make it so that this part. equation yeah. you know, stops making sense for, yeah. for lack no, of a because of the because of the petition clause of the Constitution, it's always been a limitation on antitrust law that when companies get together to ask the government for what they want, then that's not an antitrust problem. So when the fossil fuel industry gets together to plan and scheme on what they're going to ask Congress when they're doing their political planning, that is separate from combining and conspiring to raise prices, even because it's being done through the political system. And the petition clause has been read to protect that from antitrust scrutiny for a long, long time. So um, they've got an antitrust restriction-free highway to spend that immense amount of money. Uh, wow. Um, one of the and to, things- do it, to do it together, to combine and conspire and plot and plan and scheme uh, together as long as they're trying to get uh, government to act in the way that they wish through the channels of, of the petition clause. Uh, well, it does seem like, you know, it, it's always going to find a way. Uh, it's, it's a little, it's not a, not a feel good <laughs> presentation here. No, but, uh, no but what, you, what you want if, is as long as the money's going to find a way, people should see it. 
And that's where the dark money problem comes in. Even in Citizens United, the Supreme Court actually said anonymous political funding is corrupting. And that's why, yeah, it's kind of a duh moment, but they said it. And then that's why they had to make this finding in Citizens United that all of this unlimited spending they set loose was going to be transparent. The people would know that at the end of the ad, it would say, you know, we're ExxonMobil and we brought you this message. And of course, that didn't happen. And it's been over a decade now. And the court has failed to clean it up. And the result has been that citizens like you and I are disabled from knowing what's going on around us. Because the ad that comes up on our television screen at the end of the day, after smearing people and lying and saying all the horrible stuff that is now our uh, conversation in politics, will then say this ad was brought to you by, you know, Citizens for Peace and Puppies and Prosperity, which is a nothing phony front group that just hides the identity of who the real spender is. So citizens now are denied the ability to know what player is in what jersey and understand the political contest that is going on around them. And that's probably the worst thing about dark money is that it disables citizens and makes them helpless and unknowing consumers of poisonous messaging. Well, yeah, so I was recently in Las Vegas and uh, and we don't get so many political ads here in San Francisco with Nancy Pelosi on the ballot. Once again, we uh, we have very few uh, you know, sort of large scale political fights here. But in Nevada, it was so strange because every ad was a political ad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And every political ad was not candidate endorsed right if it's from yep. the candidate's campaign at the end they say i, they have to I say it. yeah exactly i endorse yeah. this message but there was like maybe one of those all yep. the other ads were Most from the some for peace other and puppies and prosperity yeah these right. tiny, In tiny tiny writing at the bottom of the screen yeah you know yeah. even and if you could happens, you know pause it and figure it out <laughs> and when that happens you can smear to your heart's content because you will never be held accountable for whatever horrible things you're saying. You can lie, you can smear, you can be as awful as you please, because there's no accountability, because the speaker is this anonymous phony organization that can be disposed of like toilet paper when the election is over. And and you pointed out something that was so weird I saw on YouTube. Somebody sent me a link to a YouTube video a few years ago. Uh, Mitch McConnell was running for re-election, and there was this video of him just happened to be there on YouTube where he's sitting at his desk and he's like shuffling some paper and he's smiling at the camera. And it's very weird. You don't understand. For, initially, I didn't understand what is this for? Why is he smiling at the camera and just doing random stuff in his office? Uh, and then, you know, as you point out in the book, you realize this is for third parties to use yeah. to put in their ads. I mean, they're not yeah. cooperating, you know, with a capital yeah. C, but I mean, they're putting yeah. these strange little YouTube videos out there. So they're for B-roll essentially for, um, for, for these ads to, to do as well, which is something that I think our viewers all can, um, can relate. Yeah, to that was understand. the, that was the second big premise of false premise of Citizens United. One premise was Oh, well, don't worry, because all this spending is going to be transparent. You'll know who it is. Ha, huh, that didn't work out. The second was, this is all going to be independent of campaigns. This is just going to be companies standing up and stating their position, uh, you know, in the public sphere. And, of course, that's not the case either. Candidates and their dark money um, groups are virtually indistinguishable. In fact, you have super PACs stood up just for a particular candidate in a particular race, so the idea that those things are going to be independent is ludicrous. But it's telling that the Supreme Court has never gone back and cleaned up those false factual premises, despite the fact that time has proven them indisputably false. And that's kind of how we get to the role of the Supreme Court in all of this mess. Well, you have actually tried um I, for many years now, I believe to um to to clean it up to the disclose yeah. act. I believe is is one of your projects, uh, yeah. and that you've introduced every year, and uh, and yet it hasn't been enacted. Have you considered um you know suspending the filibuster, or you know is it worth that to get so. the votes and get this passed? 
I think so. I think it's deeply corrosive to democracy. Even the Supreme Court that gave us Citizens United and set loose unlimited spending still thought that anonymous unlimited spending was corrupting. So it should be no surprise when we have lots of anonymous political spending. By the way, we just hit a billion dollars in anonymous political spending for Republican Senate candidates uh, in this cycle, a billion dollars. So it's out there. They know it. It's on the front page. It's obvious. And when they won't fix it, it's pretty telling to me that they refuse to fix it. And it suggests to me that they had an ulterior motive when they wrote that decision and they weren't sincere about enforcing that transparency premise at the end of the day, because they've had plenty of opportunities. Um, John McCain was pretty legendary as an expert in campaign finance stuff. And he and I wrote a brief to them early on saying, hey, guys, you blew it. This funding is neither independent nor transparent. We see it. We're in the middle of this. You've got to go back and fix this. And it's one thing to blow off the junior senator of Rhode Island, but it's another thing to blow off also John McCain, who was a you know very serious guy, presidential candidate, legendary campaign finance champion, very knowledgeable, and made our brief bipartisan so they couldn't shrug it off. It's just you know something from the left, but not enough. Um, but I do think that to get the Disclose Act, it is worth, to get this corruption out of our system, it is worth, and I would describe it as not getting rid of the filibuster, I'd describe it as going back to the filibuster, so that we actually have a system where the minority in the Senate gets to slow things down, gets to say their piece, gets to filibuster away for some period of time, but at the end of the day, we get a vote. And at the end of the day, that vote is majority rule. And if it takes two weeks or three weeks or two months to go through that process, if it's important enough, you can still do it. And to me, that's important from a Democratic point of view. And it's really important from defending against corruption. And my understanding is Democrats have pretty much across the board uh, voted in favor of the Disclose Act. Uh, yep. And having said that, I mean, there are some pretty big progressive dark dark money groups i guess you would say yeah. as the the atlantic wrote an article about it says democrats have quietly pulled ahead of republicans in untraceable political spending yeah. um what do you what do you make once, of that and should they be using that money to try to undo some of this once you let bazookas on the battlefield everybody needs a bazooka otherwise you're just going to get rolled so it we were slow and it took us years to catch up and the Republicans had uncontested dominance in this space for a very long time. But now we've caught up. But that doesn't change the fundamental problem that this stuff is corrupting and it's poisonous. And we have it has no business in our system and we've got to get it out. And my bill would get it out on both sides. Republicans can't do it. Democrats can't do it. It doesn't matter who you are when you spend more than 10 grand in an election. The voters should know who the heck you are. So um, that's really where the focus needs to be. Who is trying to get rid of this poisonous stuff in our system and who is trying to protect it? And at the moment, that's another sign of how the bias is still in place. If it weren't biased in favor of Republicans, they wouldn't be taking a very hard vote because the public hates this stuff. So it's not an easy vote. They wouldn't be taking a very hard vote to defend uh, dark money. Well, in insofar as they've used the dark money to then entrench people who will defend dark money, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. would you encourage or have you encouraged your, um, you know, other progressives and Democrats to use this money, to use these resources to to fight for more disclosure, to fight in favor of candidates who would support the Disclose Act and, and sort of count, to try to counter some of that instead of just saying, hey, I've I've got a bazooka, too. Yeah. Yes, I'm a um, constant voice for that. In part, this is a whole long separate saga, so I won't go down the road, but. Um, I don't know. This is the that. Internet. You can you got some time. <laughs> people, people hate this stuff mm. and left or right. It doesn't matter. A Bernie bro and a Tea Partier hate anonymous, enormous spending in politics just as much as the other does. I mean, the American public hates this stuff. And when you ask them about it, their reactions are really violent. I mean, they're appalled. They, they want to be rid of it. So I think we should be much, much more aggressive 
as a party taking on this publicly as an issue about corruption and about why the economy isn't serving you and about why you don't get your voice heard in Washington. So, yeah, I believe very strongly that we'd be in a far stronger place as a party if we had made taking this form of corruption out of our system a priority. Is it is it a problem that we see some, and this is what some people, I feel like this is a phrase that's overused, but so forgive me, um, you know, cancel culture, that, that yep. there are such real world ramifications for people who have lost their jobs or been, you know, kicked out of school or, you know, there's, there's sort of examples of people who have really been um been hurt by saying something by their speech and so the the idea being that you know we do need an avenue where we can contribute and be anonymous because otherwise you know sort of the world is a dangerous place for people who express certain views what do you say to people who are concerned about that uh money is different Everybody's free to express their views and they can put a face up on the Internet. Hell, we've got Russians working through fake personalities on Twitter and Facebook arguing in our politics. So it's not as if there's not plenty of room for hidden voices to come in and express themselves. It's different when you're writing a million dollar check to get a candidate elected because money is the so-called mother's milk of politics and money is a different thing because of the linkage to corruption. Um, and again, you know, even the Citizens United justices admitted that linkage to corruption. And of course, we see it now. We actually see it happening in plain view because we see these academic studies that say Congress doesn't respond to what people want any longer. Statistically, there's it's it's a null hypothesis. They do not respond to that. They respond to what the people with the money want. And so that's the difference. This is not about silencing anybody or canceling anybody. This is about people who want to spend millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to quietly get their way with politicians who will sell out their vote for the money. And if that's being done in the dark, if that's being done anonymously, if that's being done behind closed doors, covertly, in clandestine fashion, then it's really bad because the public isn't in on the information they need to connect the dots. Um, I have a question here from a viewer. It says here, do you think the Supreme Court should be expanded? Well, um, there's a problem. Not an easy question. I'm a lawyer, and I believe that if you're going to ask for extraordinary relief from a judge, you're under a very strong obligation to make your case as to why extraordinary relief is needed. And clearly changing the number of members of the Supreme Court is an extraordinary relief. And in my view, we have not made our case yet. That's one of the reasons I spent all those weekends and nights writing this book, is so that people would understand how important what was going wrong at the court was and why it happened, how it was dark money special interests that controlled who got selected, how it was dark money special interests that are advising them on what they should be doing and getting these astonishing results. Once people understand that whole saga, once you understand, like the doctor says, you've got a diagnosis, you've got an illness, here's how we need to treat it, then the treatment makes more sense for you to understand. If you just come waltzing up and say, oh, by the way, we need to uh, a dual operation on you and do some chemo and some radiation. What? I don't want that. I like my life as it is. Why would I want to change what I'm doing? you got to understand that there's a problem first. And I don't think we've done a good enough job of explaining the problem to take that step yet. I do think that there are a lot of reforms at the Supreme Court that we can do right now and that I've um, argued for right up to and including term limits, um, but also a ton of transparency so that the court is no longer the locus of so much dark money activity. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's not a country in the world where a private organization that was taking enormous anonymous donations was tasked with picking Supreme Court justices. 
we'd laugh about it if that was done in, you know, Bulgaria or Bolivia or some other country. And yet we did it ourselves. And nobody really followed that story enough. So, again, that's the story I'm trying to tell, how it is that special interests picked so many Supreme Court justices and how it is that they tell them what to do. Well, um, that actually ties in nicely with one of our audience questions, which is, um, what do you suggest to make uh, the scheme more, uh, you know, accountable? And one of the things that you talk about that um, that I've been sort of vaguely aware of, um, but is really infuriating when you really kind of keep um, when you kind of dig into it is the idea that the justices on the Supreme Court are not beholden to um, the same kind of professional ethics. Yeah. No I'm ethics. a lawyer too, as are you. I mean, there are yeah, ethical yeah. standards that that we all have to uphold, and that they exempt themselves from it. And and you yeah. talk a little bit about um, yeah, it's Aaliyah. it's pretty stunning. Well, there are three easy things that we could do. The first would be to make the spending that takes place for TV ads for Supreme Court confirmations. You should have to disclose that the way you disclose other political ads. It's a political ad. It's done by political ad makers on behalf of people with political interests in order to create a political response. So that stuff should be disclosed. The so-called Judicial Crisis Network should not be able to accept a $17 million anonymous contribution and put ads up on the air for Garland and uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett, uh, for Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett, and against Garland, um, without describe, disclosing who that $17 million donor is. And it's even more important if that $17 million donor, dollar donor has business before the court. So that's an easy one. The second is, who's showing up at the court telling him what to do through the so-called amicus curiae briefs? There are way too many groups that have no real function. That Their real function is to be a mask through which a big special interest can make its pitch to the court without showing... A, who it is, and B, how many separate briefs they finance. Uh, so that's a mess. Uh, a third one is, as you said, fixing the code of ethics. And there's a real problem there with disclosure, particularly having to do with uh, when a judge should recuse. We're seeing that right now with Justice Thomas. He says he doesn't know anything about what his wife was doing to interfere in the election or to push against abortion rights. But now everybody knows, and the question what he knew and the question when he knew it are ones that lend themselves to being determined. You investigate, you ask, you do a little report, you find out. And so the fact that they don't have any place you can go to to say, hey, somebody should actually ask the question, like in a real investigative way, what did he know about his wife's activities when he decided to rule on the decision about the congressional inquiry into the insurrection and what did he know about his wife's activities when he ruled uh, in the Dobbs case? Because that's basic, as you know so well as a lawyer, the most basic thing is that judges need to recuse when they have a conflict of interest. And the fact that nobody's even bothered to inquire into what the real facts are, and he gets to just say, it was all, it was all good here. Um, that shows how bad that situation is. So those three things, if they were cleaned up, would do the court a lot of good. Is that something you could legislate? I mean, can you force yes. the court to adopt a, a, a code of judicial ethics? Yes. Yeah. Um, and we yeah. actually, in my bill, we actually do something nice. We say, look, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put a code of ethics on you, but you've got 180 days to do your own if you, you know, if you've got a problem with what we're doing. Um that so they've got a chance to clean up enough. their own mess. And it's, it's, it's not complicated. The circuit courts of appeal and the district courts are already under the ethics code. All the court has to do is say, yep, we'll do that too. And by the way, here's the place where you go to complain or to have somebody investigate and see what's gone wrong. It's not complicated. And you don't have to necessarily throw the Supreme Court out. If, whatever, if whoever does that simply made a public report, that would put a real stopper on some of the weird behavior at the court. Interestingly, a lot of those judges are pretty mad at the court, too, because they see the stuff that they can't do because of the code and they know it's right. And they see Supreme Court justices blowing through that and violating uh, the rules that they have to live by. And they know it's wrong. 
Uh, is that part of the Disclose Act, or was that is that a separate? Those that's separate no. from the Disclose Act. The Disclose Act would just require people spending more than ten grand to uh, do an ad uh, for a Supreme Court nomination to tell everybody who they are. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, well, we've got some audience questions here. One question is, aside from eliminating dark money, what is the most challenging issue facing our country? <sighs> That's a big one. Um, and I would probably say it's the quality of the information that citizens receive. So it's one thing not to know who's behind huge expenditures in your politics, but we get lied to in really unprecedented ways as citizens right now. There are whole news, week, news networks that are dedicated to propaganda. And um, I've just got the feeling that, you know, if you remember years ago, nobody really cared that much about pollution. We had to have a change as Americans and say, wait a minute, the rivers are too filthy. One just caught fire. We got to fix that. And then we changed about junk food, too. People used to eat like Wonder Bread. And that doesn't happen so much any longer. And we live a lot longer. And again, the American people learned something and changed their behavior and, it, and succeeded as a result. So I think we need to go through one of those shifts as a population to learn more about the pollution and the junk food in our, in our news and information diet. Because otherwise, we're going to get led into very bad and dangerous places by people who have evil intentions in what they put into the information world for us. It's not curated by major media any longer. It's not curated by major newspapers any longer. It's a free-for-all, and it's a very bad forces are taking advantage of it. There's no way to get government to curate it, so people themselves are going to have to learn, um, again, how to figure out what's pollution and what's junk food and learn to steer clear of it that our political health will be better. Excellent. Well, and one of the other things you do talk about in the in the book um, that we have a question about is uh, the Kavanaugh confirmation. And I yeah. was really surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised to read that actually members of the Senate were sort of stonewalled when it came to finding out what happened to the FBI investigation yeah. or other um, tips or information that might have come in. Can you talk a little bit about about, about the, the, the <laughs> Kavanaugh confirmation process and what you, you were and were not able to, to get from the FBI? Yeah. Well, I've worked with the FBI for a long time. Being a U.S. attorney, you do that. As an attorney general with a lot of criminal authority in Rhode Island, you know, we also had a good relationship with the FBI. So I've been around the FBI for a while. And the behavior of the FBI in the Kavanaugh investigation was just weird. Uh, for starters, they became impervious to information. They refused to accept tips or public information. They would put up nobody to take a phone call from somebody who had a story to tell about Brett Kavanaugh. Very odd for an investigative agency. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't happen in the normal course. Then when they did, they wouldn't explain how it worked. And that was also a little weird. Usually People are pretty candid about the procedure. So we dug and we dug and we dug. And what we found out is that when they finally opened a keyhole to allow some information into the FBI about Brett Kavanaugh, that keyhole was in the form of their tip line, which is a phone call tip line where you call in and you leave a tip. And what they do is they sort through it to see what the topic is. And if the topic was Brett Kavanaugh, they pulled it out. And before anybody investigated it, they sent it over to the White House. So no FBI person ever investigated a Kavanaugh tip. That went over to the White House. So when the FBI is running a fake tip line, that's very un-FBI. That is a really big sign of huge political pressure on it, right? I mean, if you imagine a palm tree sitting there on a regular day, okay, that's a regular day. That's that's what a palm tree looks like. Then one day you see it, you know, that way in the in the storm, you know that there's a gale blowing because you see the palm tree bent over and all the palm fronds tearing off to the side. That's the kind of obvious nature of the FBI bending under an intense gale of political pressure to do something that is very un-FBI. 
And at the time um, that you were writing the book and that it that it was going to print, you said you guys still had not received um, certain information that you had requested from the FBI. I mean, now that Biden is president, have they have they been more forthcoming? Still digging. Uh, we had a hearing with Director Ray in which he at least admitted that the tip line was a fake, that there was no investigation done of the tip line. And he also admitted that the uh, field investigation, the questions that were asked um, and the witnesses who were allowed to be interviewed was determined not by the FBI, but by the Trump White House, which they had not confirmed before. Um, they had pretended that this was all done by procedure. But when you pushed for them to tell you what the procedure was, the procedure, they said, was that, oh, well, for this kind of an investigation, we don't have procedure. You know, again, the FBI is a very honorable organization. When they're telling you we did this by procedure, but when you dig, you find out that the procedure is we have no procedure. That's a weird starting point to say, yo, we did this completely by procedure. So, yeah, I think they're a little embarrassed by all of this, and I don't think they want to uh, have too much come out. But we're continuing to dig to find out what the instructions were from the Trump White House to the FBI for this investigation and what the FBI had to say about it. Their memos and their documents, their notes. Their, uh, we want to see what those are, because it bears on what future nominees um, can be trusted about when the FBI does another <laughs> investigation. Yeah, maybe they'll have a, a procedure in place next maybe. time. The procedure. Um, I did want to ask you. You um, so you represent Rhode Island, and yep. we do have an election coming up tomorrow. And Started. there is something interesting happening in Rhode Island with your District Two congressional race. I'm not yes. sure how much you want to weigh in on that, but I uh, wanted to give the opportunity to talk a little bit about it. You've got um, what do we got? We got Alan Fung, who is the former mayor of Cranston, who's a Republican, um, potentially in in a position to to win against um, Seth Magaziner, the state treasurer, who's who's a Democrat, uh, and that would be the first time a Democrat is represented. Rhode Island since um, a Republican since you beat Lincoln Chafee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a while, and it's going to be you know tomorrow will tell um, whether the voters in the second district um, appreciate what effect sending a Republican to uh, Congress will have in Rhode Island. What it means to send somebody down who will back a Republican speaker and the Republican. Uh, agenda, particularly the Republican agenda, as they've been talking about it recently. Um, a lot of people know the Republican candidate. He was the mayor of the city in the district with the largest population in the district for 12 years. He filled a lot of potholes. He plowed a lot of roads. He went to a lot of graduations and he ran twice unsuccessfully for governor. So he kept his hand in and, you know, was out and about. Um, but being mayor and being governor is a very different thing from going down and adding a vote to a team that is so uh, anti-environmental. And we've got, you know, major coastal issues with sea level rise, global warming and all. And that is so uh, hostile to uh, Medicare and Social Security with a very, you know, we've got a fairly elderly population in Rhode Island. So it's I think p people are going to figure out that we're now voting for Congress and not for mayor. And the fact that I know this guy is not a good enough reason to put those things at risk. But I don't know. It's very close. The polling is in many races around the country is very close. What do you make of um, how the Democrats have run their campaigns this time around? There's all kinds of sort of pre-election criticism of, of the party and, and what it's just what is focused on. Uh, in the in the run up to election day, do you think that the party has has made the case and done a good job, or um, or do you think would you have run it differently or focused on different issues? Well, I'll go back to what we said uh, earlier, Melissa, and that is that I think that um, the public is really upset about improper influence, all the way rising to corruption in the U.S. government. Uh, they feel very strongly. A great many people, like most people that they're not being listened to, that other people are getting ahead of them in line and getting things that they want, and they're being ignored. 
And whether you're right-leaning or left-leaning, it's a very common view, and it's a very angering view in a, in a citizen's democracy uh, like ours. And we have a very ready explanation for that, which enjoys the added benefit of being true. And I don't think we've done at all a good job of putting that issue forward, of explaining to people that we are with you, we're trying to clean this mess up. The reason that you're being not listened to has a lot to do with the way the system runs and these big donors getting a fast lane right by you to the decision makers and nobody cares about you any longer because you can't write a million dollar check. That we have to fix. And I think if we'd spent more time focusing on that, um, we would be in a in a better position. You, I don't know if you remember Jane Mayer's article in The New Yorker about this issue where uh, Mitch McConnell's minions and the Koch brothers' political minions were having a conversation, and somehow she got a transcript or a recording of the conversation. And there was one issue that was like kryptonite for them. They couldn't clean it up. They couldn't bend it their way. It was just terrible for them. That was this issue. So we actually had the other side at the command level saying, oh, my God, this is a really bad issue for us. This kills us. Even our people hate this stuff. Oh, my God. Tea Partiers and Bernie Bros agree. We've, we're in big trouble here. And what did Democrats do about that warning from the other side? Nothing. We didn't pick it up. And There was a moment in World War II when French pilots were flying over the Ardennes Forest, and they saw all the Nazi armor lined up along the roads waiting to go in, and they reported back to, you know, Paris, hey, the German arm or German armors lined up for miles on the other side of the Ardennes forest. They may be trying to like blitzkrieg through to us. And the French commander said, nah, that can't be right. Those pilots couldn't be right. Imagine being one of those pilots and looking down and seeing that and then being ignored. Sometimes I feel like one of those French pilots. We did Would not Chuck get Schumer there on be this the, issue. Uh, be the French be the French general? Is that is that who we are? Schumer's actually been really helpful. He's really he's gone out of his way to give me opportunities to to make this pitch, to pitch it in the caucus, to put um, credibility behind the argument with the White House. But as a party, we just really I think completely missed what was a very fat pitch right across the plate, and. Um, I mean, they just voted to defend this horrible regime of dark money. Why would we not make a bigger deal out of it? And then they got a billion dollars in dark money in the Senate elections. Go figure. Uh, I mean, it's so it's so amazing to talk about elections with the B word uh, and in terms of I know. spending. <laughs> um, I know. And I think it was the 2016 presidential election where you, I think, was we crossed the threshold um, and now it's just sort of now it's yeah now it's in Senate elections, not Which one is... but the the pack of them. But you know there are a hundred of us, right? And only right. a third of us run any given year, and half of those races aren't contested. So it's a pretty small number of races to spend a billion dollars in of anonymous money. I mean, anonymous to us. You think Mitch McConnell doesn't know who's behind it? Of course he does. You don't think the candidates know? Of course they do. It's just the public that's fooled. Wow. Uh, we do have another audience question here. Somebody says, um, since joining the Senate in 2007, what has changed the most? Is there anything you wish you knew or understood better as a new senator back then? Well, that's a really good question. First, I'll have to say I hate that we lost John McCain. We were of opposite parties, and um, we quarreled on various issues from time to time pretty uh, vigorously. Uh, but I admired him immensely, and I was a pallbearer in his funeral. And uh, voices like his are precious, and we have very few. Um, I think Liz Cheney is trying to honor that legacy on the House side. But this business of people being willing to line up like automatons to do what the dark money tells them to do is not at all what I expected when I got there. The best example is the Republicans all inventing that there was a magic invisible rule that they couldn't confirm a Supreme Court justice the year before a presidential election. And that was their excuse for stopping 
Judge Garland from being President Obama's appointee on the Supreme Court. And of course, that rule was ridiculous and nobody actually took it seriously. But they all saluted and went and lined up toes to the line and did their duty and uh, pretended that was a thing. And then just like a year later, a little over a year later, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and they have to do a complete 180 on that principle of no Supreme Court uh, confirmations within a year. And without hesitation, they all spun and they went and they did their complete 180, just abandoning any shred of principle they might have had. But, you know, I use that again as an example in the book of the gale force political pressure uh, behind capturing the Supreme Court. Um, but it's also an unfortunate change in the Senate. And I think if there had been more people like John McCain, who had a big independent streak and were really country first, somebody might have said, hey, wait a minute. You know, we just told everybody that there's a one-year rule. We can't go breaking it the very next time. Let's have a little, a little process integrity here. Um, so I miss that a lot. And I think John was one of its exemplars. Again, other side, and we fought uh, pretty hotly from time to time, but I loved him dearly and I admired his courage and I think he would be much um, much more uh, active right now. I miss his voice because I think it would be an important one. What are they afraid of? Are people, are they so afraid of the private sector? Or, you know, yep. of no, being a normie that, uh, that, that they're willing to, to bend as you, as you put it? Is that, is that the fear? I think it's the dark money pressure. I think that. But pressure to uh, do what? I mean, pressure. Like, are we to do, basically to do or? To basically to do what you're told. You know, or when I first when I first got there, we will hurt your kneecaps. Like, what is the threat? Yeah, exactly that. When I first got there, you raised your own money, basically. I mean, there's a Republican Senate campaign committee and the Democratic Senate campaign committee, and they could spend, and PACs could get, corporate PACs could give you five thousand dollars. Oh my. And then you just made a million phone calls to raise your money. Now, you don't need to raise money for yourself if your leader can make a call to a big special interest and have them write a $10 million check to a super PAC that will come in and obliterate your opponent with TV spending and prop you up. And from time to time, they turn on one of their own. There's a congressman named Bob Inglis who they crushed in a primary because he refused to go down the climate denial road. Um, so they just crushed him and made an example of him. Um, other And everybody looked at that and said, oh, wow, look what happens when you cross these guys. And the motivation for that just changes when you move from a world in which the biggest thing a corporation can do to hurt you is to give a $5,000 PAC contribution to your opponent and have the CEO host a fundraiser and raise 200 grand um, at his fancy home. If that's the best they can do, okay, you know, bring it on. But if they can write $20 million checks and hide who they are and have it come down crashing on your opponent through, or on you if you don't behave, through, you know, voters for peace and puppies and prosperity, it's a whole different world. Yeah, I'm just, it's just baffling to me that, that people would um, sell out just to stay in office instead of, you know, <laughs> going back, going back to the farm. Yeah, going back <laughs> to the farm. Well, you'll notice that actually a lot of them are retiring because they don't want to go on this uh, merry-go-round any longer. And the ones who are retiring are actually some of the some of the best of the bunch. Uh, that's true. We are seeing a lot of uh, a lot of retirements. A lot of people not running. Uh, again in the next you're going to be running again yes you'll you'll that's be that's the plan okay <laughs> i'm not making an announcement when i make my announcement i want to have it be a proper announcement but yeah. of course of course just confirming <laughs> um i have a question here from... house announces to re run for re-election in front of california commonwealth club <laughs> <laughs> um it says here um do you have a favorite Supreme Court justice? Let's say past or present. We'll just let's just open it up. You could it could be John Marshall. It could be you know any any, any or anyone else. Well, um, I'm a um, big fan of Sotomayor mm. on the court. 
Um, she seems more than any of the others to appreciate the political situation around the court and that maybe this is not completely on the up and up. Um, I think when you get on the court, there's a very strong pull that you need to buy into the Supreme Court um, consensus narrative that you never ascribe ill motive to anybody else. Um, everybody's got to be friendly and a big, happy family. And there's nothing going on here. It's all legit. And I think that the facts now completely disprove that it's all legit. You just can't run up the kind of numbers this court runs up. You can't run over very basic propositions of appellate practice the way this court has done. You can't um, do the sort of mischievous behavior that the court has engaged in, or at least the majority. And particularly when all of that is happening, to ignore that, I think, is a is a big mistake. Hard for the judges to come to that realization, but I think um, Sotomayor was the seems to be the first to be realizing that. Now, Justice Kagan is picking up her game and getting, you know, she's pulled up her socks and is getting into the fight a, a little bit harder. But I do think it's it's important. They let him get away with a lot. I mean, there should have been a dissent in the case in which John McCain and I wrote the brief in which some of the other judges noted, hey, wait a minute, guys, you said that this was going to be transparent. You said that this was going to be independent. We now know that isn't true. You can't clean that up. You know that those were false premises. You can't just let a decision stand that we can see in plain day stands on false premises. Let's let's talk about that. Let's make a fuss about that. Let's make our point on that. And they didn't. They just let that let that moment pass. Is there um, is there any effort from um, from groups on the left to try to uh, to bring a case where they could actually fill out a um, sort of have a trial and fill out a factual record of, of regarding influence yep. of the influence of, of dark money on politics? Yep. Or is that there have been a few uh, Chris Van Hollen brought one in the horse in the house, sorry, in the house, <laughs> in the house quite a while ago. And Ted Lieu brought one more recently. And I wrote a, another amicus brief in the Ted Lieu case, making the same point that I'd made with John McCain years earlier. And again, the Supreme Court refused to take the case up and ignored it. And in fact, worse, once they had Justice Barrett on the court, they decided a case called Americans for Prosperity Foundation, um, which for those of you who follow politics, you will know sounds a lot like Americans for Prosperity, which is the Koch brothers' main political battleship. Well, Americans for Prosperity Foundation is the 501c3 sidekick to Americans for Prosperity. So it's a heavily political operation. And they brought a case before the Supreme Court saying, hey, we have a constitutional right to keep our donors secret. And guess what? While the court was busy taking away a constitutional right from half the American population, the female half, they created a new constitutional right for the so-called corporate population of the U.S. and created a brand new right to dark money. So, yeah, there's a lot of thought about sending a case up there. But the problem is when those cases go up there, the court goes out of its way to defend the dark money regime, which not coincidentally is the same regime that got them on the court in the first place. Well, we have time for one more question. We'll try to end this on a happier note. So I, for our final question, I wanted to ask you one from the audience and it says, what gives you the most hope for our country moving forward? Well, you know, we've been through bad times before. Um, frankly, if Joe McCarthy wasn't a drunk, he probably would have been president. I mean, he he really kicked up some really dangerous stuff. Um, you had the era of the Palmer raids when the attorney general was raiding uh, folks and um, people were being thrown in jail for their political beliefs. Uh, union leaders were being rounded up and locked up. Um, immigrants were being deported wholesale. So, and my God, of course, we had the Civil War, which was about as brutal a conflict as, as you can have. 
So we have had these terrible moments, and we always do seem to spring back, because I think ultimately in the American character, there is a yearning for America to be a leading country, to be the city on the hill, to be the beacon to the rest of the world. We want to be special. And you can suppress all that. You can pour dark money on it. You can wrap it up in political corruption and prevent people from getting their wishes met by Congress. And you can do that for a decade, for two decades. But at some point, that resilient, um, honorable um, force of the American people just will assert itself. And the sooner that happens, the better. But someday it'll happen. <laughs> Excellent. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, the senator is the author of this scheme, How the Right Wing Used Dark Money to Capture the Supreme Court. And if you want to work, watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in virtual or in-person programming, please visit us at commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Melissa Kane. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.